Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Good to have you on the show, Niels. How are you doing today? I'm doing um, fantastic. I'm a bit tired, but I'm doing really good. Though. So, so bear with me if I'm a bit slow in my uh, head. Let me just start with a quick introduction for our listeners. Niels is the CEO and co-founder of ContractBook, an automated platform that helps businesses and individuals manage and organize their contracts and automate their workflows. Also, Niels is a member of a Forbes Council, and he was named one of the rising stars in Denmark. His company has raised more than 40 million to date. And I'm personally a big fan and a user of contract book. And what I can tell you is it's simple, it's efficient. They have an amazing customer support team. So Niels, why are you angry with PDFs? Look at this. That's the PDF. I'm not angry with the PDF. I think it paved the way for us. I think it's the diesel engine of where we, where society was built. And I think that today we're looking for the next thing. We're looking for the Tesla and the, 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 the hybrids and, and figuring out how the future is going to look. I'm not angry. I think it's a fun topic. We also sign PDFs and contract books. So it's not, you know, that if you use it, but it's something that provokes. It's something that makes people interested. Like, obviously I think the PDF format is fucking stupid to be honest. Today's date, like, but when it was made in 93, it was great. But in 2022, I think that we're ready to the next level, using the data in a better way, not trying to kind of OCR everything out of it. And so I don't think that I'm not angry with it, but I think it's kind of a fun topic, but like, most of all. No, I agree with you. I think the PDFs were a great invention at a point in time. They paved the way, but now with being interconnected and a lot of APIs and a lot of third-party tools, it's important that we move forward with something that is more useful to the community. Take us back to the time when you were sitting in your cafe at Copenhagen and your friend presented you with a problem and they said, hey, there's no digital solution for smaller businesses to manage your contract. You sketched your first iteration on a napkin. You created contract book. What happened next? How did you validate that this idea is not just a problem that your friend has, it's something a wider community had. And how did you avoid like a sample bias or confirmation bias? Because a lot of founders would say, hey, I have a great idea. Let me go ask my friends and family. There are 10 people. And then you will search for things that confirm that your idea is correct. So is there a framework that you use to make sure that, yes, this is a solution that will benefit a big chunk of the population? I think that fundamentally, at that point, I already kind of ran businesses for a while. So it was like, it was something that I could see that I was missing myself. It was something that we missed in our business in London, where you sit right now. We had a transaction with the client where we basically got screwed due to the signature, like them picking apart the PDF, us not being thorough enough how to do it and getting signed in the right way. And kind of basically just due to legacy documents where we, we ended up like us being, not having a, a lawyer and not having like a system that helped us do it in a good way. So I think that most of the people I talked to, especially the kind of the enterprise segment thought it was like a idiotic idea, to be honest, like they saw it as a digital signature and that's never what we saw. Like for us, it was always about how do we turn it around and say, like, how do we do the whole fuck the president and how do we figure out to say, 
let's move forward. Let's build something else. Like we know, knew very little about contracts when we went into it. We knew very little of the CLM space, very little about the digital signature space, very little about the OCRing of the, like how you work with it, very little of the competitors and that's like, and the storage and like how this kind of, all these kind of different point solutions were connected into one CLM space. We knew nothing about it. I think that what we knew is that. We felt that we needed to figure out how to build the roadster, you know, the Tesla roadster. We needed to like, there's only a thousand of them and it get people committed. What we did to start with, like, unlike my first startup, where we had a really hard time getting to the first hundred, I connected with Victor, one of the co-founders who worked with us before. And he was like, so he had a sales role to start with. And Victor basically kind of just went out there and sold Slideware to get that confirmation from. So we started basically before selling it, before we even had a product where we sold uh, like to Domino's and Panerai Car and like pretty big companies who's actually not in our ICP today, but we sold to companies to kind of confirm that it made sense. And then we also confirmed what didn't make sense about our product because we were very stubborn on the format that it wanted. we wanted to build it as a database. And then we figured out that like where they basically had to use our templates. And then when you have big companies, obviously they're not going to use your templates. Like they have their own templates, right? So we had to build an editor that they could work in and start with. We only had like a backend editor. So we had to build the documents for them. I was very clunky. And we was finding that balance between being very stubborn on your format and building faster horses. And like, how do you make sure that you can build the future and not the faster, like not faster, faster horses. That, that's very difficult. Because you will get confirmed and people wanting the past when you ask them. Do you remember your first customer and how did you convince them to buy a product that is not known yet? I'm not completely sure because we were working on a, a lot of deals with our Slideware and with the very early kind of version of contract book. But I think it was Rainmaking Loft or Penner Car. Like Rainmaking Loft is the office space in London or I actually don't remember exactly. I actually don't remember. I think it was either Domino's or Rainmaking Loft or Max Burger or something like that. Like it was very kind of, it was very, like very, very early. No problem. I put you on the spot with that. What Good sort question. Of, I should know. <laughs> what sort of acquisition strategies did you deploy at the beginning to acquire these 100? Some of them were successful, probably some of them were not. Can you share with us things that were not scalable at that point in time, but they landed you a few of these customers? So I think that we've done it twice. So we did it in Europe or Denmark, and then we did it again in the US a year ago, a, little, a bit more than a year ago. And we're now at 100 clients, approximately a bit more, maybe it's like 150 or something like in, in the US. And so I remember that more clearly than the first 100. It seems like a long time ago. So the first 100 was very much like a hand-to-hand -hand combat. We had this almost like we killed, we called it like a rainbow strategy where we went in like one man army trying to kind of convince the world that what we did was a good idea. That was very like insanely unscalable, right? And we did the same thing in, in the US because we wanted to figure out like, how do we get the first, not hundred, but how do we get the first kind of 25 logos on it? And then when we do that, that's when we start doing blitz wall, right? That's when we start kind of saying, okay, our product actually kind of fits. And then we start getting some feedback on it, and then we have some feedback and some iteration on it, and then we start actually doing real marketing to support it. And then after a while, you start doing events, and then you start doing conferences and dinners and whatnot, right? Then you start doing stuff. But to start with, it was very difficult, and I think that you also kind of have to accept your ICP 
like like not being where you want it to be, especially in our case, like we do contracts with very little brand equity, which we obviously had when we started. It was very difficult to convince people to take their contracts out of like really known like Dropbox or Drive or DocuSign or whatnot, and then say, hey, now you're going to put all your documents into this platform that's raised $100,000, you know, and then like go. In that case, it's a lot of evangelism. It's a lot about people believing in the future. It's a lot about, it's a lot of young companies. It's often quite a lot of young founders who has very little kind of responsibility towards stakeholders because they can take that leap of faith with you. Where if you have a procurement department in, in a big company, like it's difficult. So when you want to get to a hundred, not just proof of concept, I think the first couple of ones are the, in our case, what we did is that we went in, we got some logos that people could recognize. And then we went almost like down the market and said, okay, now we're going to sell, get to a couple of hundred logos in a hurry, very cheaply with people who can kind of like the way we can make a repeatable kind of hand to hand combat motion where we said, for example, we had a thing with, um, office spaces. And I just mentioned rainmaking, like having office spaces for small companies, sell contracts to small companies because we have this Pico motion built in. So then we got a lot of the office space called Rainmaking, then sent out to 500 of their clients to every time. So every day they sent new lease contracts to their clients. And then we got new logos who saw what we did, who fitted into IC, like our broader ICP. So that was kind of validating it. So we hoped and believed a lot in the Pico motion, the actual experience of contract book you talked about before, and that converting into something that people wanted to buy afterwards. You have a very strong flywheel effect in your business model because if I'm a contract user, I'm going to be sending to the second party a contract book link. They will see, they will have eyeballs on your brand. Probably in the future, if they need a contracting tool, they now know that contract book is one way to go. So you have an embedded virality into that business model. At what point in time did your flywheel spin fast? You mentioned in one of your interviews that you were probably at 250K users, but at what point in time you started to see that growth velocity pick up? It was the spike with the GDPR, first of all, like in 18, like my 18, there was a big spike. But I think that the general consensus, like the general idea for us was that we thought around a thousand logos you would see some like real rivality into the product that happened already at 400 logos. And like, you could kind of like rewind the idea and say, okay, at 20, like how many logo, how many contracts do you send? Right. So even though you can discuss the adoption of the product and how people like yourself, like how well you use it, like contract book is a product where the average business in our ICP probably sends around 12 documents. And if you, if you sit in a conversation and in a monthly basis, if you sit in a conversation with you, I would ask you, how many contracts do you send, Hadi? Hadi would be like, yeah, I, I think that, uh, I, let, let me try. How many contracts do you send a month? Well, part of our insurance business, we onboard a lot of agents and producers to come in and you sell our products. So on a probably weekly basis, we can do up to a 50 contract okay. through contract book. Wow. Yeah. So through the template. So that's being sent out, being onboarded. It's quite a big number. That's impressive. Like, because most companies that I meet and we talk to, they're in denial at this point. They're like, yeah, I don't, I only send four contracts. And then they're like, okay, but do you? And then he's like, so you have GDPR, you have NDRs, you have employment contracts, you have sales complex, you have compliance documents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, that in all cases, even when we're a seven man business, like a real small company, we send 
more than that contracts and that on a monthly basis. Like I would consider myself very unsuccessful as a businessman. Like if I've sent less because that means I have absolutely no movement in my business, right? So when people kind of go in and say, we don't like, it's not worth it for us because we don't send enough contracts. It's also kind of saying we actually don't have any success at all and we're not moving forward at all. And then you're like, okay, cool. Then you won't be able to afford what we do either, right? The value itself doesn't matter. Like, so it might be a great fit, like on paper, on paper, it looks like, yes, this is a company under 250 men over 10. They work out of this country. They work in this category. They are perfect fit for our foundation plus sales add-on automation into Slack, into Stripe or something like that. Great. But if they only send one document and they only have one client that they sent and they don't sell and like, it's not a fit, right? Like then we can't give the return of investment. And I think the return of investment in our case is actually the money that you save uh, at the time you save more and then that you're necessarily getting it. Like, I don't see it as a sales enablement tool. I'm happy if you do, but I see it more as a, I make sure that you get all your contracts sent all the time. And I make sure that you also remember all the stuff and you know where everything is. And therefore I'm going to save you money over years of time. Like every year I expect that I'm going to send like shit. I'm going to save you between 20 and $40,000. If you're a small business, because of if you set it up correctly and let us help you set it up correctly, you're going to see that everything we do and what we kind of build is data input in and out of systems, like a manual work. And it's a, it's a repository for you to remind her, like remind yourself of everything you do. So if a NDA runs out, if you send her employment contracts, then it automatically sends an NDA on the back of that back of the signature, it shares it in Slack and says, Hey, we got a new colleague and la la la, you know, that kind of, and it puts the data into the salary system. And like, and then it sets up a reminder where it says, Hey, remind yourself to do a 50 day review and investing scheme review in nine months or something like that. That kind of stuff will save you a ton of money, but nobody's ever done before. So like, you're really talking to evangelize. I'm not trying to sit and sell you obviously because you already know, but that's the difficult part when you, because we've been selling the same stuff, like forever. It feels like it's now that you have a late millennials and Gen Z who's getting into power and they get it. They just really get it. Where if, you, if we talk to boomers or early millennials, it's a hard, it's a hard sell. Yeah, it's a hard sell. Yeah. And I, I'm a millennial, right? I'm 38 years old, I'm turning 38 in a couple of weeks, but I see it. Like I'm, a, I'm not a tech savvy person anymore. I'm not sure if I ever was, but I see the guys in mid twenties who's working on implementation team and working in the, like with this stuff. These guys are fucking sex savvy. They get it. Like they're born and raised digital. I got phone with someone when I was 12 or 15 or whatever. That's when I, and it, I could send text messages. Like that's it. Amazing. You mentioned in also one of your interviews that early on you priced your product cheaper than expected. Mm -hmm. And this was one of the learnings there because there was a lot of value the user could have extracted. So you increased your prices. Is there any other learnings that you came across in your first hundred paying customers? The biggest learning was that when we sold to cheap, people were committed less. And it was actually a bit easier to sell it when you sold it more expensive and people got more value out of it. You also got clients who were a bit tad mid mature. So I think that we still have people who were with us early, early, early. It's not that big a proportion at this point, but I think that the learning was that we thought I remember sitting in the window at our old office and listening to a Drake song or something and being like, I got it. We're going to lower the price from $15 to $4. Everybody got to buy it. The problem is we're not Apple. So people are not going to buy our storage for $1. Like that's just not how it works because we have absolutely zero brand equity compared to them. 
So I think that that was the, like the thesis didn't work. We started, I think 15 to $20, and then we went down to five and then we're at that point. And then scaling that was just impossible if it wasn't like full virality. And then the adoption and the recognition of what we did was too low. And then we increased it. And when we increased it, we, that's when it really started to take off. Amazing. You have an amazing blog with great content. Mm -hmm. I can tell content marketing is a pillar in your, in your growth strategy. If you're starting from scratch and you have $10,000 budget, how would you allocate it to content in the early phase of your startup? I actually don't know how I would do if I had a still budget. I think that like, if you do organic, that's obviously the best one way to go, but it requires constant work. And like, because we have these Google algorithms, all that, they kind of like requires for you to kind of update your content and make it relevant all the time. So I would probably go small and ICP, make sure that the primary value proposition and try to own that organically, make it interesting. I would always go edgy personally. I think that a lot of content is pretty boring. And I think that we had success uh, early days with doing the whole kill the printer, death to PDF, all that kind of stuff, because it made noise. Again, that's pretty, probably back to the kind of the Rambo strategy, hand to hand combat. Yeah, that's probably what I would do. I think we split our efforts a bit too broad on our organic and CEO efforts early on. I think that we tried a bit too much and we had more than 10,000 and we couldn't kind of follow up on it all. So the more hacky initiatives were sh more fun. They had a big, bigger impact because then you had a thousand clients globally in that ICP who really loved what you did instead of having really high time and nobody knows who you are and you're not really following up and your number number seven on page three, right? That doesn't really help you. Then it's better having, you know, a more narrow sort of like if I had to redo it, that's what I would do. That's great advice. Thank you for sharing this. Your series A pitch deck is on business insider. The majority of founders don't want to share their pitch deck to the public. What was your strategy behind this move? Press. We wanted, like, we had a hard time. For some reason, TechCrunch doesn't really like us. We're not in, in interested for them. So we talked to Business Insider and they're like, yeah, you know, we can do it, but would you mind sharing this, your pitch deck? And like, I don't because I know that it floats around anyways. Like when you fundraise, like we had a real kind of public round in the Series A with a data room. At that point, if you wanted our pitch deck and you're in the ecosystem of startups and raising money, you would be able to get it. Like anyways, so we weren't, afraid of it. And I think we're also proud of what we did. And therefore it, it, it for us, it, it, we had nothing to share uh, to, to hide it. Sorry. We had a lot to share and nothing to hide, I guess. For a founder, if they do this strategy, do you think it would impact more their next round of funding or would you think it would get them some leads? Maybe leads, maybe brand recognition. So when they see your name for the third time, they might consider to your point about receiving a document, they might consider. So if they didn't receive a document, they might get more comfortable with what you do in your brand and therefore they might consider using you as a platform instead of DocuSign or something like that. I think at the end of the day, that's who we compete with. We compete with the more established players and we need to kind of, they need to get comfortable with who we are to kind of buy it. And I think that you can choose a ton of different angles to do it. And I think that it's more about the persistency. Like you said, what's the best advice to hundred? I think that not diverting from your vision and being persistent why you're different and why they should do you and being comfortable with that is okay. I think that the moment you start diverting to whatever people are saying, I think that's when you start hurting. If we did that, uh, we would have a digital signature platform right now. We would just be signing PDFs and being a shitty version of DocuSign. And you know, that was never good before. 
Thank you for sharing your honest feedback. Let's shift a little bit to Niels. Mm-hmm. What keeps you up at night? I think being enough for everybody you want to be enough for. I think that when you work long hours and you travel and you do stuff, like you tend to let down some of the people that you care the most about and not because you want. And I think that my better half, Anna, is a very supportive person, but I constantly have, I feel bad of sitting here and, and I'm not being with her and, and, our, and our daughter. Like I, even though she blames me absolutely nothing and she's very supportive, you can't help feel that way. So I think that is like, are you enough for your team? Are you enough for your co-founders? Are you enough for your VP layer? Are you enough for your parents? Are you enough for your, in my case, girlfriend and kid? Am I enough? Can I do enough for everybody? And obviously I can't, but I don't think that anybody, it feels like blame. I think I blame myself more than anything. What is one principle or value that has shaped Niels as an entrepreneur? I have one that I use all the time and I, I say to everybody who starts in country book as well, that I expect and hope that they will treat others like they want to be treated because fundamentally, none of us, like few of us are psychologists and HR people, but from a team perspective, if you're being a great teammate and you're doing your best to help the others. And like, I don't know exactly what Hadi likes. If, if you came to my office, the first thing I would offer you is like, can I make you a coffee at a fancy coffee machine? Is there anything you need? Is there anything like, la la, show you around, get, make you comfortable and then take you to a meeting room. Kind of, I don't, I want it to be a very pleasant environment for you to be in and be like, because if I came to your office, I would hope that you would offer me a cup of coffee. I like coffee. I hope that you would offer me a cup of coffee if you could. So it's not about the coffee. It's about. It needs to be obvious to, to the visitor or to your teammate that you're doing your best. To, so if you're the person who says hello every morning and goes around giving knuckles and stuff, if you like that and you would like everybody else to do that, you should do that. It might be that I find it annoying. That doesn't matter because I see that you're doing an effort. And I think that the effort part in startups is the most important thing from a culture perspective and from a teammate kind of perspective that we're a team. Like, I know that I don't treat others like they want to be treated, but I do my best. I know that I can't make all 150 people in, in contract book all happy, but I can do my best to make the people that I be around and I am around as, as happy as possible. If you want to be remembered for one thing, what would that be? That's a difficult question because if it's a private or if it's like, or if it's a company thing. So I think that correlates to job- work related. Work-related, I think that you just want to be reminded for being a, uh, a person you can trust and being that I'm always authentic to myself and to, to what I do and I'm accountable to the people that I'm around. And somebody who created something was a part of creating something fantastic and interesting and fun. I think that's, um, for me, it just needs to be fun. Like it needs to be interesting and fun. Otherwise, I don't want to do it. One last question. What's next for contract book? We're considering buying DocuSign. I think that we slowly are kind of progressing into the American market and then one by one kind of taking, hopefully taking it like a big market chunk here. We hired some like new VP marketing. We hired a new VP product to come with experience for generating half a billion ARR. So I think that we're setting ourselves up for the kind of the next level, like growing to the next stage of the company and making sure that we kind of get some resources in that can help us pattern recognize the next steps and help me become a better leader and help the company develop in the correct way. 
Niels, thank you for being part of our show. This was an amazing episode. How can people reach you? I think they can find my contact information on the internet, both my email and LinkedIn and all that, if they want to. And otherwise, they can you know, follow my blog on Forbes. I also have a new one on, on The Entrepreneur as well. So if you want to read my thoughts instead of trying to talk to me, I'm pretty annoying, then it's probably the right place to go. Thank you, Niels. Have a great day. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for letting me be part of this. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers.